You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and Washington, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at the Post. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Walter Isaacson, the author of a blockbuster new biography of Elon Musk, the world's richest man, certainly one of the world's most interesting men. Walter, congratulations on the book. Uh, welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's great to be back with you, David. And if I may say, uh, congratulations on your column today. Everybody should read it. It's a very thought-provoking about what Biden should do. So I'm a big fan of yours, too. Thank you, Walter. We'll leave the column for another time. I want to start by asking you about Elon Musk's uh, newest public admirer, Vladimir Putin. Putin said yesterday at an economic forum in Vladivostok, when it comes to private business, Elon Musk, he is without a doubt an outstanding person, one has to admit. I think everyone would admit that all around the world he is an active, talented businessman. That's a real gee whiz <laughs> comment from, from Vladimir Putin. The uh, type of compliments you don't want to get. Well, maybe, but it, it does uh, lead uh, pe people to wonder about this relationship. There are times when you wonder almost if it's a, a bromance. And I, I want to ask you about what you've learned about Musk's contacts with Putin. Has he spoken with him, as, as has often been, been suggested? Uh, what does he think about him? And, and, and maybe most of the point, if Donald Trump became president, what sort of relationship would you imagine that Musk would have with Putin? Well, let's start with whether or not he's talked to Putin. I know some people have said that, that Musk goes around saying, oh, I talked to Putin. Whenever I talked to Musk, he said, no, no, I talked to the Russian ambassador, somebody, you know, and sometimes I get messages, you know, of what this is, what Soviet Russian policy is. But as far as I know, he, at least he, told me he had no direct conversations uh, with uh, President Putin. And as far as his relationship, he has this almost hero complex. So as you know full well, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, he immediately came to the aid of Ukraine and uh, Viasat, the satellite company, its satellites were all disabled. Even the US and other military couldn't do satellite communication. So Ukraine, as Vice Minister Fedorov has said often, would have been crushed had uh, Starlink, had SpaceX and Musk not rushed in Starlink satellites. So I think that he still is quite in favor of protecting Ukraine. I also know from talking to him, he thinks that this war has gone on quite a long time and perhaps a ceasefire would be useful now. Well, let's talk about Ukraine, which, which is the most uh, controversial, uh, most uh, publicized aspect of your book. You wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post summarizing uh, the uh, exchanges that uh, mm -hmm. Musk had uh, over Starlink coverage of Ukraine, and specifically uh, the, the denial of coverage for Crimea. You later uh, amended, corrected uh, the initial account you'd, you'd given. Help our uh, viewers understand what happened in this story. Just walk us through uh, Musk and Starlink's involvement uh, in Ukraine and in, in Crimea specifically. Yeah, they were, uh, as you know, the Ukrainians were launching a secret uh, attack 
on the Russian fleet in Crimea using Starlink to get these drone submarines there. And that night, Musk got very excitable. He can be apocalyptic at times. And he told me that I'm not allowing him to use Starlink. I'm not allowing him to use Starlink because he could start World War III. I made a mistake, which I mentioned a couple of days ago, and I've said, which is I put in the book, he cut off uh, Starlink. In fact, what he did was reaffirm the decision that it would not be enabled on the Crimean coast. And I have all the text messages back and forth because the Ukrainians didn't know that. So that night, I mean, the essential point is that night, uh, Musk did make the decision not to enable Starlink to be used for this sneak attack. Now, I should have just expressed it that way, which is he decided not to enable Starlink to be used for this sneak attack. But that leads to the broader question of, what gives him the power to decide whether or not uh, a sneak attack on uh, Crimea is something that should be allowed and whether or not it would lead to a wider war? I want to come to that, that question of, of his quasi-diplomatic uh, role in this crisis, but I want to focus on one detail here that uh, I find, and I think others still find puzzling, which is why didn't the Ukrainians know that Starlink was blocked in Crimea when they began planning this drone mission? They put a lot of effort into it. It was a significant uh, offensive, but it was doomed to fail uh, given the, the position that, that, uh, that Musk says he, he had already t taken. Why were the Ukrainians so surprised to learn that they wouldn't get Starlink coverage in Crimea? because Musk had uh, not enabled it at Crimea and kept that a secret. And by the way, as you've probably seen in the book, there's all these uh, encrypted text messages that I was given because it happens in Donbass as well. They can't figure out because uh, Musk also decides not to enable it in parts of Eastern Ukraine because he doesn't want it to be used for offensive purposes. When I grilled Musk on that, he said, well, if you read the terms of service, it was only supposed to be used for defensive purposes. Well, read the text messages from uh, Fedorov and the other Ukrainians. The, he's saying, this is my village we're talking about. You can't call that an offensive thing. We're trying to protect my village. And so that was the thing that happened that night on the sneak attack. It wasn't just that he refused to enable it, but the Ukrainians didn't even know that it had been, and Europe, you know, all this intelligence stuff. Well, uh, the technical term, it is, it had been geofenced within a hundred kilometers of the Crimean coast. The decision had been made earlier to geofence uh, it. And then they do the same in Donbass without telling uh, the Ukrainians. And so in real time, you can see these text messages going back and forth saying, you've got to enable this. These are, this is my home village. We got to fight there. And also they wanted him, uh, Fedorov shows them the sub and how they designed a drone sub using a Starlink. And Musk says, that's really amazing. That's wonderful. But this would have caused a nuclear explosion if I had enabled you to use it. And Walter, why did Musk keep the fact that Starlink was not enabled for Crimea secret from the Ukrainians? In effect, they were walking into a trap. They thought they had coverage that they didn't. Why did he keep it secret? 
It was geofence, as I said. He felt that the terms of service uh, was it wasn't supposed to be used for offensive purposes. You and I can discuss all you want whether or not Crimea, you know, is part of Ukraine and it should have been included, but it wasn't. And uh, you know, why didn't he tell the Ukrainians exactly where the geofence was? Frankly, uh, I don't know. So uh, just to roll back the tape a, 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 a bit, a, a few months, as you suggested earlier, uh, Musk began uh, as quite supportive of Ukraine, arguably uh, critically supportive. You write Probably that in, in the first week of the, of the war, he was holding meetings every day with his own Starlink engineers to discuss how to support Ukraine. Uh, you have a quote, unlike every other company and even parts of the U.S. military, they, Starlink, were able to find ways to defeat Russian jamming. Uh, you note that Starlink kits were connecting the Ukrainian military to our Joint Special Operations Command, our most secret uh, op operatives uh, in, in the country. It was Gwen Shotwell, the CEO of SpaceX, who was nervous about the extent of, of involvement more than more than Musk in that early phase. So my question is, what happened? What, what changed him from being all in to being very nervous and suddenly geofencing all these areas when he'd been such a supporter? I don't get it. You know, I talked to him during this whole thing, and there was late one night, he said, why am I in this war? He said, I am, you know, created Starlink so people could chill and watch Netflix movies and play video games. I did not mean to create something that might cause a nuclear war. And then I just asked him, and it was a question, but I think he, you know, took it as maybe prodding. I said, have you talked to Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor? Have you talked to General Mark Milley of the Joint Chiefs? And he had, he had been talking to them. And he said, if they tell me to do something, I would do it if I got a directive. But what he did, which I think is the right outcome, is he decided to sell and give total control over a certain amount of Starlink uh, equipment, Starlink services to the U.S. military so that he no longer controls the geofencing. He no longer controls the terms of use. And he's even created something called Starshield which is a military, a military version yeah, of uh, the Starlink satellite. And so I think that was his way of saying, I got to get out of this. Even I don't believe I should have this much power. Of course, that leads to a larger question too, which is why couldn't the US, why couldn't any other US company, why couldn't the military uh, build satellites that work? But now they're buying these Starlink satellites and I think that kind of resolves the situation. I mean, you and I at least would prefer to have the US government be in charge of making that decision as opposed to Elon Musk, a private citizen. There, there's a moment that's particularly uh, telling and, and arguably troubling when Musk talks to the Russian ambassador to the United States in what's almost a diplomatic role. And the ambassador tells him that a Ukrainian attack on Crimea would lead to a nuclear response. The, the idea of that message being conveyed from a Russian ambassador to an American a business person 
uh, a threat of nuclear war is astonishing to me. And I'm just wondering, Walter, what, what did he then pick up the phone and call Jake Sullivan and say, I just heard from the Russian ambassador that there's a nuclear warhead if we if something happens in Crimea. What did he do? He did call Jake Sullivan. He could, did call Mark Milley. I don't know if he called like right away, uh, but he had had conversations and he explained in late night conversations. He would tell me, here's Russian doctrine, here's Russian law, an attack on the homeland could invite a uh, nuclear response. And I'm saying to myself, but even asking him the question, uh, have you asked Jake Sullivan? Have you asked Mark Milley? And that's the way it does evolve. Even he realizes that these decisions should be turned over to the U.S. military. He's talked to ambassadors. He's talked to the Chinese ambassador quite a bit, too. You know, this is why this is an interesting book. This guy read superhero comic books in the corner of the <laughs> library when he was a little kid because nobody would play with him. And I think he internalized the notion that sometimes you run around with your underpants on the outside and try to save the world. So he, he clearly, on every page of your of your book, he's in the business of, of saving the world. Just to close out this question of, of um, Starlink and broadband internet uh, coverage for uh, potential conflict areas, I'm curious whether you think that competition is going to take care of this problem. Amazon is already thinking about yeah. um, a, a constellation of a thousand uh, low Earth orbit satellites uh, to support uh, broadband internet and other other things. There's a British company called OneWeb that's got similar ambitious low Earth orbit plans. Uh, are we going to end up having co enough competition to Starlink that there'll be a range of choices? Uh, for for governments, for, for for individual countries that are at war, so that we won't be in a position of, of depending on so desperately Elon Musk? I sure hope so. And you would think so. Uh, in fact, the big question is, and you talk about Amazon and people and whatever, but they've not been able to build a rocket that can get a satellite into orbit. Likewise, OneWeb, I may be corrected here, I hate to make another mistake, but I think OneWeb tends to use some of the SpaceX launch vehicles in order to get their satellites up. Did you know that the really big secret, and I don't know the details of them, U.S. intelligence satellites have to be in high Earth orbit some? How do they get up? Well, Boeing doesn't do it. NASA can't do it. It takes uh, the super heavy of SpaceX to get them uh, into high into orbit. So a question you have to ask is, yes, we would like to have a lot. I, I think the world would be much better off with a lot of competition. But why is it that Boeing and NASA and Amazon and Bezos, nobody, nobody has been able to shoot up a rocket, send things into orbit and land it back and reuse the booster? And Musk has done it, you know, scores of times. So I think there should be competition. It's almost why I wrote this book, which is, okay, here's how we push things forward, but we need more people doing that. And we've become, uh, whether it's NASA or a nation, uh, a lot of our risk-taking uh, has been tamped down. We got more regulators than risk-takers. And I think that might be the bigger reason why nobody else is can get astronauts from the U.S. to the space station other than SpaceX. 
Nobody else can launch almost 5,000 satellites other than SpaceX for, for Starlink. And so we want more competition and uh, I hope some people read the book and say, okay, we're gonna figure out how to do this. So I, more regulators than risk takers is one of my takeaways from our, our conversation. So I wanna go to the core paradox of Musk as he emerges in your book. Uh, he, he comes across as a supremely brilliant engineer and, and risk taker, but also uh, my impression of him as an arrogant jerk uh, was reinforced by, by reading the book. And you seem to come down on the positive side that, that you know, if you want the genius, you got to accept the jerk. Uh, on the last page of your book, you ask the question that I hope you'll answer for our viewers. Would a restrained Musk accomplish as much as a Musk unbound? Is being unfiltered and untethered integral to who he is? And then you talk about great innovators being crazy enough to think they can change the world. And that's obviously Musk. So do you have to buy the package? Is that one of your takeaways from this book? I don't think you justify bad behavior being an arrogant jerk. I think that's bad. But you and I can think of a whole lot of people um, in your realm, uh, Richard Holbrook. And you say, what if we took out some of the arrogant or the jerkiness? Would he still have been effective? George Packer's biography of Richard Holbrook is brilliant at showing not that these jerky bad sides we should justify, but that they're part of a whole cloth woven together. And I think that's true of Musk. He is dramatic, he's risk-taking, he doesn't really give a damn about what people think. And John McNeil, who ran Tesla a bit, who was president of Tesla under Musk, said, you know, I always wondered, did he have to be such an asshole? And <laughs> he said, if he hadn't been so harsh, if he hadn't been so pushy, we probably couldn't get Tesla to where we did where we're the only company making a million electric vehicles, he said, but is that a price we want to pay? And John McNeil said to himself, I wouldn't want to pay that price. I'd give up some of the success. I wouldn't pay the price of being such an asshole. You know, each reader's got to figure it out. If you ask me, well, I hope I wouldn't be quite as bad, but you know what? I'm also not going to get a rocket to Mars. You had this rare opportunity to spend uh, a lot of the last two years with him. Was that, um, on the whole, uh, enjoyable? Was it fun to be with him? <laughs> Boy, is that not an adjective I would have just, it was <laughs> thrilling. I mean, uh, you've been on a roller coaster rides at the wildest amusement parks. Afterwards, you say, wow, that was thrilling. The interesting thing about Musk is that there's not really just one Elon Musk. Like his father, he kind of has multiple modes and personalities and almost Jekyll and Hyde at times. So you can be with Musk and it'd be the funnest thing in the world because he's being inspirational and funny and walking an assembly line or factory and making these decisions on the fly that turn out to work and you're going, wow. Then you can be with Musk when almost instantly you see the storm clouds coming and he turns dark and he reams people out and he's a jerk or the technical term you use that begins with an A. 
And no, that's just not pleasant. And I hope I describe that in searing detail in the book. And I also go to the people that he treated that way and say, why did you stick around? Because I'm trying to get the whole fabric. People can see the stories and they can say, okay, I can try to be like this, but I'm going to try not to be like that. Walter, let's talk a little bit about his acquisition of Twitter and transformation of it into uh, X. Uh, I should just note for viewers, one thing I learned from Walter's book is is that X has been um, uh, Musk's kind of icon from the beginning. He called everything X. He had X.com and it's SpaceX. And so it isn't just branding Sorry. Twitter with yeah. a with an X. It's been it's been around for a while. But Walter, um, the acquisition of Twitter and then his behavior once he, he bought it seems um, to be judgmental, like the dumbest thing he ever did. Uh, he uh, has not been a good steward of something that was a, a national, a global resource, I think, by most people's account. Um, I'm, I'm curious about a couple things. First, um, can he clean up the mess that he's made at Twitter? Does he want to? There's some way in which he just seems to be sulking, you know. I'm going to just make it so bad you'll hate it even more. Um, and is he becoming a kind of hard right guy? I think of Peter Thiel, another brilliant uh, Silicon Valley guy, but who's really a hard right person. Is, is, is Musk becoming that person? And is the Twitter story uh, really telling us that? Well, I think he acquired Twitter, hoping to turn it into what he had done 20 years earlier, which is X.com, which was a payments platform connected with a social media platform that becomes PayPal. And then he gets ousted. I think he wants to turn uh, what was Twitter into something much broader. I also think in answer to your question that I'm awed at times by his fingertip feel for material science and the physics of engineering. He doesn't have the same feel for human emotions, for social networks. I asked him once, I said, well, this doesn't seem like your uh, specialty is running a social network that depends on emotion. He said, no, it's a uh, technology company. It's an engineering issue. And as I say in the book, no, it's not an engineering uh, company. It's a advertising medium that depends on human emotion. Now, he didn't like the sweet and gentle notion of Twitter, the way it was, either the corporate culture when he walked into the headquarters or on the site with chirpy little birds and words like Twitter in which people like me and you got anointed as a blue check elite, and we had polite conversations and important conversations on Twitter. He's a hardcore person. He also felt that it was limited in the range of speech that it allowed. In other words, and you know, to some extent, I agreed with that because I was somebody who was very conventional in my thinking about COVID, but when you start not allowing people to debate the lab leak issue or debate whether lockdowns are good or not, perhaps it got a little too constrained. Now, a lot of things happen when he takes over Twitter. First of all, he's got a, you know, he, he just loves this product. He does it on impulse. Secondly, as you said, he has started to move over the past two or three years to the right for many reasons. He's been 
criticized for being a billionaire. His uh, firstborn child, speaking of X, was named after his famous, his favorite character in the X-Man comics, Xavier. And she transitions to being Jenna, a daughter, which he accepts, but she becomes very, very left-wing and against all wealth. And he thinks there's a woke mind virus. I know y'all have discussed this a lot, however you want to define it, but he believes that in you know, in both at Twitter and in schools and everything else, we've been pushed too far to this progressive ideology. He doesn't always believe that. I mean, because sometimes in the day he'll talk about, I'm a centrist, I want to contribute to moderate candidates. But when he gets dark, sometimes late at night, sometimes on Ambien and Red Bull, he becomes, as you said, further to the right, a Peter Thiel-like further to the right, and puts his thumb on Twitter to make it more combative, let it have more fringe speech. And I think worse in allowing that fringe speech is that he sometimes puts his finger and amplifies by engaging with some of these fringe speakers. So Twitter has now become X, a hardcore site. It actually has people making money by posting videos. It has a whole lot of new features. In some ways, it's got more use but it is certainly less useful to what you and I used to enjoy, which is a global town square of authenticated people trying to make uh, interesting statements. I wanna ask a question in the remaining time we have, uh, Walter. Uh, we asked for audience uh, questions. We received almost uh, 400 of them. And many of those questions asked about allegations that have been made of anti-Semitism mm -hmm. against uh, Musk, his uh, dispute with the Anti-Defamation League. Um, I wanted to ask you to, to speak to um, this aspect of, of, of Musk's uh, uh, personality and, and, and thinking. How would you characterize his his thinking about conspiracy theories, uh, misogyny, uh, anti-Semitism. He's obviously got this sort of juvenile side um, left over from his boyhood in South Africa. Is, is this something that concerned you as a, a biographer? Do you, do you, do you think yep. there's any merit in the questions about anti-Semitism, for example? Well, Jonathan Greenblatt, who runs the ADL, says he doesn't think Musk is anti-Semitic. But I do think that by allowing people who say anti-Semitic things on the platform and allowing them to be amplified, that has the same effect. And of course, I, I don't like that. I'm, I'm, I'm worried. About, I mean, I'm worried about it. Think it's bad. Um, I think that there's a whole uh, conspiracy, as you put it, uh, mindset. And a lot of my book is sometimes what May Musk's mother said which is the danger of Elon as he becomes his father. His father lives in South Africa, is a very, he thinks the election was stolen from Biden. He thinks if you get vaccinated, you're gonna die right away or something. So uh, if you talk to Musk, you say, well, a lot of those conspiracy theories, uh, whether it's, I don't know, lab leak or whatever, turned out to have some merit to them. So there are times when he gets into this, which, you might call fringe or conspiratorial mindset. But one thing I have to emphasize, and that's why the book is a, a narrative, is that there are times he's not that way. He snaps out of it, where he's 
very rational. We're trying very hard to make it uh, uh, an environment in which hate speech is not amplified. So you have a mercurial, complicated person, which is, in my mind, if you're going to ask the question, probably not the best uh, use of his time uh, to be running what used to be called Twitter. Walter, well, a, a last question before we let you go. Uh, Elon Musk is is 52 years old. I want to say just 52 years old. I know, we're getting into the gerontocracy, you and me. Uh, so I want to ask you where you think he's heading, you know, five years out. Um, is this a person who is, is going to continue to grow and be a dominant and enriching figure in our in our uh, certainly economic technological life? Or is he a man who is flying too close to the sun, as it were, who's just getting up there and is about to burn himself out? What's, what's your guess? Well, in some ways, both is true. He's going to be a driving force for things like the very end of my reporting. He called, asked me to come back to Austin and show me his uh, plans for going into artificial intelligence. As you know, today, he's at the meeting. Uh, I think it's Capitol Hill or that Chuck Schumer brought together on artificial intelligence. He always is looking for drama. As he said, he's always putting his chips back on the table. He's always risking things, which means, to get to the second part of your question, he flies very close to the sun. He just launched Starship last April. It got up. It got in. Then it blows up. There's a lot of debris in his way. Twitter, or what used to be known as Twitter, some of that is uh, sort of burning debris that he left in the wake. But he will be putting chips back on the table. He'll be trying to do real-world artificial intelligence and involves driving, self-driving cars and robots, not just large language models that chatbot at us. So he's going to be this driving force. And yes, the book ends with certain explosions. We see the Twitter. We see the Starship. We see the rubble he can leave in his wake. But he will keep putting chips back on the table. He will keep getting things uh, launched, and he will occasionally keep leaving rubble in his wake. Uh, alas, we have to end it here. We've come to the end of our of our half hour. I want to thank uh, Walter Isaacson, uh, author of this extraordinary new book about Elon Musk and, and one of America's great uh, biographers uh, over many years. Walter, thanks for, for joining us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.